those cheers signal change. A major league soccer franchise, now the latest chapter of reviving downtown St. Louis. Good evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Courtney Bryant. Steve is off tonight. Many details still need to be worked out before the first match takes place in St. Louis. But MLS soccer is coming to the city. That much we know now. The first game will happen in March of 2022, and the MLS believes it will be played inside a new $200 million stadium downtown. However, all parties are mum tonight exactly where that will go. We do know it will be located in the vicinity of Union Station on Market near Jefferson. News Force Alexis Zotos is tracking those developments. She joins us live in downtown St. Louis. Courtney, a scarf was placed on the runner statue here in Keener Plaza this morning, and that was the clue that so many St. Louisans were waiting for. It's a scarf that has MLS as well as today's date, 8-2019, a date that many believe will go down in St. Louis sports history. A cold beer to the right, or you're welcome to head on into the main beer hall. Uh, the line snaking around Urban Chestnut Brewery at the Grove tonight as fans revel in the news of St. Louis becoming the 28th MLS team. So soccer is very important to me and my family and obviously the, the city in general. Um, I've been playing soccer my whole life. The MLS for the Lou Ownership Group hosted the happy hour as a thank you to fans. We're setting records on social media and news outlets about how excited not only North America but the world is about St. Louis getting this team. The excitement evident at the brewery filled to capacity. The question was, how can St. Louis not have a team? Um, so to finally be this close to it and to be able to say that it's a reality is, uh, is something I, I honestly never thought would happen, but uh, just uh, very excited about the possibilities. Mike Laposha played for the St. Louis Ambush, the city's indoor team, when the team won the championship in 1995. He knows very well about the soccer fandom in our city and hopes to see it continue to grow. When I was growing up, the only opportunities that, that we had to look forward to were in indoor soccer. And uh, it didn't stop us from, from reaching for those goals. Uh, now that there is a, a first-rate, top-level outdoor soccer opportunity, um, is only going to encourage more kids, boys and girls, to reach for the same goals that I was reaching for when I was a kid. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hey now, everybody. How's it going? This is Tim Hanlon, and uh, indeed, this is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast. Each and every week, we uh, delve into what used to be in professional sports. Now, we try to our uh, very best ability uh, to stay as relevant as possible. We don't necessarily just want to fully revel in the past and, and wallow in the muck and mire of, uh, of nostalgia. Now, do we? But frankly, a lot of uh, the stories that we've uh, unearthed over the last two and a half years of doing this little, little show seem to continue to resonate and percolate and uh, reinvent themselves. And this week is no exception. If you've uh, been living under a rock, well, uh, then you probably don't know uh, or frankly should know that St. Louis, arguably the soccer capital of this country for well over 100, almost 150 years, as it were, as we're going to get into our conversation this week with our guest, Dave Lang, is now the 28th member and counting of Major League Soccer as of a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, St. Louis has finally climbed the mountain, if you will, after all that uh, 
tremendous history that uh, the sport of soccer and St. Louis have intersected in and with over the uh, over the many decades. The uh, highest tier of professional soccer uh, is now going to call uh, St. Louis one of its franchises. And uh, the uh, city of St. Louis is very excited, as you heard on that clip from uh, KMOV television, the CBS affiliate down there in St. Louis, Channel 4, if you're uh, using your uh, your TV set and uh, and your original uh, TV grid guide to find the channel. But uh, yes, yeah, St. Louis media was all abuzz, uh, as were the fans, as you heard in the background. And overdue is probably an understatement for uh, the city and the metropolitan area of St. Louis, uh, which is very rich, perhaps no city uh, that has more heritage. That's a better way to put it in the sport of soccer than St. Louis. And our guest this week, Dave Lang, uh, lifelong St. Louisan and basically de facto historian, uh, the author of, uh, I think, frankly, one of the best books that we've ever uh, looked at and reviewed here on this show. It's called Soccer Made in St. Louis, A History of the Game in America's First Soccer Capital. It came out in uh, 2011, and it's basically sold out, but there are copies, there are used copies available, and you can find uh, copies of those uh, on our website, and you search up this episode with Dave, uh, Dave Lang, that is, uh, at uh, goodseatsstillavailable.com. You'll find a link uh, to Amazon where you'll be able to find a few of those uh, copies that are still out there. Uh, but as you'll uh, discover uh, as we get into our conversation with Dave in a few moments, you could make the argument very strongly that uh, this book, uh, and it's tremendously written, uh, the visuals, uh, the graphics, uh, the photography, it's, it's just terrific. It's, it doesn't feel like reading. It just feels like a, a treasure trove or a, a, almost a memorabilia collection. But it's very rich and very well written and, and very detailed about uh, some of the names and the teams that have uh, adorned or uh, called St. Louis home for all these years. And we get into uh, all of those things. We get into... Uh, Various folks, we can certainly get into a lot of the teams, as you heard a few of them sort of referred to, uh, the St. Louis Stars of the National Professional Soccer League in 1967, when uh, one of two professional leagues decided that they were going to give pro soccer a go. We get into, uh, obviously, indoor soccer with the St. Louis Steamers, uh, the St. Louis Ambush, the St. Louis Storm. And frankly, we even get into the earliest days of the pro game in the United States, with the founding of the original American Soccer League back in the 1920s. And that that in and of itself is an interesting story. And it traces its history and its beginning, its origins, right back to St. Louis, Missouri. That's the topic of conversation this week. The history of soccer and St. Louis, they are synonymous. They are very rich and deep together and uh, arguably now coming home uh, with the uh, advent of the soon-to-launch 28th franchise in Major League Soccer that will uh, live and breathe in the great gateway city of St. Louis. And uh, we'll get into that in a couple of seconds, so uh, stay tuned for that. And you can celebrate our testament to the history of soccer in St. Louis this week uh, by uh, visiting two of our great sponsors. We don't want to disappoint you in any way, shape, or form, and you're not going to be disappointed when you go to streakersports.com, where uh, you can use the promo code GOODSEATS to get 10% off all of your purchases. And there uh, absolutely is a smart looking uh, St. Louis Stars uh, t-shirt. It's in uh, sort of royal blue and it has the uh, original 1967 National Professional Soccer League, NPSL. That was the renegade league that did not have the FIFA blessing. 
uh, but did have the CBS television network contract for national broadcasts. Uh, that's the original 1967 NPSL logo of the stars. And uh, you've seen maybe some of the NASL version uh, St. Louis star shirts out there, but this is the only place I've really seen at streakersports.com to find uh, the 1967 version of the St. Louis stars. It's a smart looking shirt and uh, 10% off that purchase of that shirt and many others, by the way, in their special collections section. This is where you'll find in the defunct leagues tab, you'll find all the old NASL uh, shirts and, and whatnot, and obviously not just the NASL, but lots of other sports. But that star shirt can be found at streakersports.com. Again, use that promo code Good Seats. It's an awesome looking shirt, and I frankly have not seen it anywhere else. Lord knows I'm pretty diligent about this stuff. And of course, once you're done there, you want to go to oldschoolshirts.com, uh, our other sponsor this week, and they've got a promo code for you there too. That's also Good Seats, and you will also there, courtesy of P.F. Wilson and his friends uh, at oldschoolshirts.com, get 10% off all your purchases there. And uh, it's even more comprehensive uh, for you St. Louis soccer fans. If you want a St. Louis Storm indoor soccer shirt, they've got a fancy looking one there. They've got the St. Louis Stars NASL version shirt. So there's a great place. And I think that one's even on sale. Uh, so you kind of want to run, not walk to get that one, as well as a St. Louis Ambush logo shirt from the second incarnation of the National Professional Soccer League. That's when it was an indoor league after the demise of the MISL. So all those three shirts and plenty more, not only in soccer, but lots of other sports and other pop culture stuff, that's all available for you at oldschoolshirts.com. And again, that promo code is, once again, Good Seats. And you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases uh, when you shop early and often there at oldschoolshirts.com. So we want to thank streakersports.com and oldschoolshirts.com, he says. It's been a long day for their patronage of the show. And uh, we uh, encourage you to enjoy those discounts. And we thank you for giving them a try and maybe giving us a few uh, shekels of love uh, in the process by uh, buying a shirt and supporting the show. Why don't you? All right. We appreciate that. And we also appreciate you continuing to listen to our, uh, our excellent conversation. Uh, I learned a tremendous amount from our pal Dave Lang, and we're going to get into it. Uh, the history of soccer in St. Louis uh, they say past is prelude. Well, uh, you uh, St. Louis MLS fans, give a listen because I think you're going to enjoy this conversation with Dave. And as we get into what happened in the, in the sport of soccer in St. Louis before uh, a couple of weeks ago when you got that MLS franchise. Here we go. With St. Louis getting the 28th, count them, franchise in Major League Soccer, which we'll talk about a little later. I'm sure you have some opinions. You know, it's obviously important to uh, remind folks about the the history of St. Louis as, frankly, one of the, uh, if not the sort of uh, locus of of soccer history in this country. And I, I think it's lost on a, a couple of generations, probably. You've written the seminal book and hence my reach out. So maybe you can give us a little bit of a sense of, of you and why the history of soccer in St. Louis was your story in the first place, maybe to get going. Sure. Um, I, I had uh, been covering soccer since the early 1970s. And as we uh, moved into the 21st century, there was an attorney here named Jeff Cooper who made a uh, serious attempt to get an MLS franchise. This was at a time when the franchise fee was like $7 million. So guys who were millionaires like him could afford it. This was a couple of years ago, right? So this is... This was in the mid 
uh, the first decade is since around 2005. Got it. Okay. This is sort of in when that, that time frame. sort of newly ascended after having contracted a couple of teams and, and looking forward yet again. Yes. And, uh, you know, he thought, you know, he played soccer in college. He's a soccer guy. He's like, why don't we have a team in St. Louis? And MLS said, well, show me the money, you know. And uh, at that time, it was an affordable project for him. And as part of his project, uh, he wanted somebody to do the history of soccer in St. Louis. So he approached a local publisher and um, they got the project together. And in the meantime, the franchise fee was going up and up and up and basically priced him out of the market. So the publisher decided to go ahead with the book anyway. And uh, they approached me in 2009 to write it. Um, and that's was the genesis of the book. It took about two years to put it together. Lots of research because the only history that had ever been done about it was a, a doctoral thesis in 1966 um, for a guy who was going for his doctorate at St. Louis University. He was a local high school baseball coach. And uh, there was nothing since then. So it took a lot of you know primary research, a lot of interviews, a lot of digging. Uh, it took about two years to put it together. Uh, and the result was the book uh, Soccer Main St. Louis. Well, look, I think I having having seen uh, uh, the uh, the PDFs of it, uh, and, and I guess I guess it's out of print. Uh, we, we as we sort of uh, chatted on uh, an email pre- previously. Yes, it's sold out. They printed twenty five hundred copies. It's sold out in about three years. Um, we're talking about doing an updated edition, having it ready when MLS gets here. That's not definite yet. So. Well, I, I certainly hope so because I, I, having uh, had the opportunity of to to read much of it, it, it's it's really well done. It's really well laid out. It's it's not torturous. It's not jargon laden or research jargony. It's really fantastic, and and it's it really does outline what is I think probably not fully understood that that, that and we've we've talked about some of some elements of this in previous episodes, but. You know the the history of this sport in the in this country is actually very very significant, albeit not sort of quote unquote mainstream or maybe well documented. And and St. Louis, arguably, you know one of the the central hubs of that. What, what did you think you knew about this long rich history before you got into this? And and maybe w- what didn't you know? Well, I didn't know it was that long and that rich. You know, as I did my research, they were playing you know at least as far back as 1875. Um, they had an established league by 1886, and in 1907, they started a fully professional league. And there's some discussion about whether or not that's the first fully professional league in the United States. That, So I'm not sure if that's true or not. But to be playing soccer at the fully professional level in, in 1907 in a little city in the middle of the United States is pretty significant. And um, they were, at the same time, they were developing uh, grassroots soccer at the youth level teaching boys how to play the game. Um, and that was really, I think, the difference between St. Louis and most other cities. Um, First-generation first immigrants played soccer. Their kids took up baseball and other American sports and kind of left soccer behind. In St. Louis, the difference was, difference was a generation after generation of kids played the sport. You know, it was part of their fabric, you know what I mean? Um, like, it was baseball in the summer, soccer in the winter. And that's kind of how St. Louis developed, especially in uh, the Catholic parishes in St. Louis. There's a huge network of Catholic parishes with elementary schools attached to each church in the city. Uh, and that's where the sport was taught. And those guys would grow up and play, and then they'd come back to their parish and teach it to the next generation. And 
on and on. And by the mid sixties, the uh, Catholic parishes had uh, almost 500 teams in eight age groups with almost 10,000 players. And I don't think there was any other city in the United States had that kind of a youth soccer network. So that was the difference between St. Louis and most other cities in the United States as far as soccer goes. Well, I mean, why do you think St. Louis? I mean, St. Louis is not the only city slash region in this country that, you know, was heavily uh, ethnically uh, uh, centric and and, uh, folks coming in and first generation workers. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, native interest in in the sport of soccer as people came across these shores. Why do you think St. Louis maybe stood out from maybe what would seem to be more obvious places like, I don't know, Northeast cities or, or places in Ohio, you know, industrial centers, that kind of stuff. Well, among uh, the many interviews I did, one of the best quotes I got out of that angle was from Shep Messing, the goalkeeper for the New York Cosmos. Um, and he said when he grew up, he had no idea about St. Louis soccer until he went to Harvard and started playing against St. Louis teams. And he said it was they're like the 800-pound gorilla of soccer in the United States. They were big and fast and technical, and I had never come up against that kind of soccer. So it was it was a, it was just like in the fabric of this of the city. Um, as I mentioned, it, it, the kids grew up playing it, and then the next generation of kids grew up playing it. And it was a conscious, organized effort to teach the sport to kids, rather than just have them, you know, become immersed in baseball and football and basketball. So I think the difference was the the effort to build a, a huge network of youth soccer in St. Louis as far back as the 1880s. That's what paid dividends and made soccer such a part of the city. So I, I really one of the essential sort of themes I, I sort of got from this book was uh, it, it clearly as that uh, those roots were being uh, nurtured and and strengthened. There were efforts and people in particular. Uh, who, you know, I think kind of looked beyond the St. Louis area to see, hey, maybe there's more interest in this sport uh, beyond this uh, fledgling city in, in, in the middle of Missouri. Tom Cahill is a name that uh, early and often comes up, and, and it, you've dubbed him or maybe others have dubbed him the father of American soccer. Maybe we can use him sort of as a jumping off point, because if anybody wanted or attempted or saw the possibilities maybe of soccer in a more organized and even professional sort of pursuit uh, beyond the borders of St. Louis. I think it was him, no? Yes, and he, he was born in New York, but he moved to St. Louis as a kid, and he lived here for about 30 years. And uh, he went back to the East, and he's basically credited with forming the U.S. Soccer Federation. And beyond that, in the 1920s, he started the American Soccer League in the Northeast, uh, which was a conscious effort to make soccer, uh, one of the major professional sports in the United States. Um, unfortunately, the Depression came along in the late 20s and pretty much killed that league, although it hung on for a long time after that. But he was he was the big picture guy, as you said. You know, he saw the national possibilities of soccer in this country, and he's one of the people who was the prime mover behind that. So the ASL, the and I, you know, historians now look back. I think there were there have been four uh, actual flavors or, or distinct uh, versions, if you will, of the American soccer. But this is the, the first and even the, the the sort of second one. I think uh, certainly the first one in 1921. And again, I, I get this. Your book is full of rich sort of uh, detail on, on sort of this stuff. The I, I, it's lost on a lot of people, which to me I don't even know. Right. He was kind of envisioning the idea that the pro game could actually be maybe the second, you know, major professional sport in this country. In the early 1920s, right, baseball was really 
the only sort of true organized pro sport and pro football were very nascent, right? After still being, you know, a college sport, hockey still kind of a, a very regionally centric kind of thing and, and not really quote unquote major per se. I mean, it's a very interesting time period where soccer, I guess, was drawing pretty well at the old Sportsman Park and and to the point where it was almost uh, one of the world's best leagues, I guess, right, at that time? It was a uh, four-team league, and all the players were paid uh, by gate receipts. And uh, so it was the best players in St. Louis. And then when the ASL sort of went belly up uh, in the late 20s, early 30s, a lot of those guys came to St. Louis and played in this league. So you've got guys uh, like uh, Billy Gonzalez, who many people think may be the greatest American soccer player of all time. He came here and played in the St. Louis League for five or six years. Um, so for a period of, you know, for, for throughout his existence from 1907 to about 1937, the St. Louis League was definitely one of the, the top, top two two leagues in the United States for professional soccer. There was the ASL starting in the 1920s, the St. Louis League from 1907 to the late 30s. So they had, they, St. Louis definitely was, the one of the centers of soccer in the United States during that period and beyond that. I think it's interesting. There was a quote in there that uh, Cahill years later uh, was kind of sort of lamenting the fact that, um, you know, that the, with the depression, you know, and, and the, the subsequent ASL that sort of came out of the first two go rounds that largely was, you know, stuck around for a good 50 years or so, but was largely semi-pro and ethnic and regional, you know, arguably the closest thing to professional he kind of lamented that uh, there was almost a missed opportunity there. I, I don't know how much he could have changed that, but did soccer professionally miss its window in the 20s and 30s, or or is it just fated to not really happen? Well, that was that was definitely a missed opportunity. I mean, if you're going to build a major pro sports league in the United States at that time, it has to be in the Northeast. I mean, if you look at Major League Baseball, I mean, St. Louis was the farthest franchise west in Major League Baseball in that time. And most of those teams were concentrated in the Northeast. So, you know, if you're going to succeed as a pro sports league, that's where you have to succeed. So he had a correct vision by starting that league there. It's just unfortunate that the Depression came along and pretty much wiped out everything he had done. So it's it's a shame, but yeah, that was a missed opportunity for sure. All right, well, I'm sure people who grew up in, say, in the Kearney, New Jersey area or uh, the suburbs of, uh, of industrial Boston or New York City are probably yelling at their devices right now saying, hey, you know, we, we have a deep, deep roots as well. But, you know, I think St. Louis geographically and in terms of uh, overall participation rates and whatnot uh, sort of outdoes all of them. So maybe we can kind of sort of segue into what I think you term sort of the heyday uh, sort of period, right? So, you know, obviously uh, the earliest days of the sport and it seems to me that uh, in the 50s, you know, obviously the ASL sort of puttering along and, and they're obviously regional leagues and company sponsored teams and stuff and, and some cer- certainly some significant pockets of activity around the country. But in St. Louis, it seems like it's uh, almost in some respects in overdrive, including and maybe especially uh, at the collegiate level where arguably that was somewhat nascent and maybe sort of a, a stage that that St. Louis uh, and the university there. Uh, kind of set itself apart and kept the game, if you will, alive and and maybe even, you know, prospectively pro again someday. Yeah, if you look at the period from 1950 to 1980, I mean, the St. Louis dominance of soccer was almost universal in the United States. I mean, the uh, 
starting with the 1950 World Cup team when five of the 11 guys are starting to line up from St. Louis and they beat England one nothing. Then you have um, semi-pro teams in St. Louis like Kudis that won six consecutive U.S. Amateur Cups. And in 1957, they won the U.S. Open and Amateur Cup in the same year, the last team to do that. Um, starting in 1959, St. Louis University won 10 of the first 15 NCAA championships. And starting in 1956, St. Louis teams won the McGuire Cup, which is the U19 National Championship, 17 times. So that period from 1950 to 1980, St. Louis was – really at the forefront of soccer in the United States, and the statistics show it. And it wasn't just St. Louis at the collegiate level. Southern University at Edwardsville, which is just outside the St. Louis area, won several national championships. Quincy won, I think, 10 NAIA national championships using almost entirely St. Louis players. University of Missouri St. Louis won a national championship in 1972. I'm sorry, 1971. So that period from 1950 to 1980 was just like the heyday of soccer in St. Louis. That's 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 uh, simply amazing. But what, what what do these players, you know, do after that? I mean, it, there was really nothing more, I guess, after college. And I can't imagine many of those players even had the wherewithal or the, or the consciousness to think, well, okay, well, you know, maybe ASL, semi-pro, you know, maybe as a sideline to a, you know, a, a proper day job or or what about uh internationally i mean did any of these you know superior american players playing in these st louis teams uh, ever sort of break through on the international level save for you know a 1950 outlier in the world cup yeah that there was no breakthrough internationally there was nowhere to play until north american soccer league came along after college um what happened in st louis is a lot of guys kept playing amateur ball so it was called senior men's soccer and that was a very popular sport for guys when they finish college to keep playing you know, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And um, there was a, uh, one of the uh, key uh, U.S. players of that period, a guy named Al Trost from St. Louis. And when he became old enough, you know, to consider where he's going to go to college, he could have gone to like Michigan, Michigan State, places like that. And he said, I wanted to stay in St. Louis and play at St. Louis U. Because on Sundays in the winter and the spring, I could play amateur ball in St. Louis because those games were just as good as the ones I was playing at the collegiate level. So that was uh, that's those, that senior men's soccer were where these guys went after college and played in you know, those for until their 30s and 40s. So, I, I mean, I, and I'll trust, obviously, uh, to our uh, soccer fans out there, obviously well-known in, in the NASL. We'll get to that uh, in a little bit. So are you basically saying that that most of those that played in this area and who kind of fancy themselves as sort of staying into the game somehow, either full-time, uh, I guess that's coaching or uh, teaching or, or other administrative kinds of things, as well as playing, you know, uh, somehow staying involved in the sport would stay in the area pretty much or, or and not export it, so to speak, other places in the country? Or, you know, I, I'm curious about the diaspora, if there was any, because obviously St. Louis seemed to get stronger and stronger as a hotbed. But, uh, you know, in the 50s and 60s, still no pro game to go. Was Trost more of an outlier or, or was that sort of common to stick around? That was quite that was quite common. Um, as I, I mentioned, Quincy College. They're about, about 150 miles north of St. Louis in Illinois. They were almost exclusively using St. Louis players. And those guys, one of the reasons why they went to Quincy is they could come to St. Louis on weekends in the 
winter and spring, like Al Trillison plays senior ball. So the kind of the path of progression was he played college ball, probably in St. Louis. After college, you got a real job somewhere to make some money and buy beer, you know. And then uh, you played on weekends in the, in the senior soccer. I mean, you're, you're not making a living playing soccer for sure. But, you know, the only way you can make a living was become a high school teacher and coach high school soccer and make some money that way. But most of the guys, you know, found jobs elsewhere, but they kept playing the game uh, in this, at the senior level. So the progression was, you know, as I mentioned, college, get a job, play uh, amateur soccer on the weekends. Well, that, that's interesting. It's also a, a, a very compelling backdrop to what was happening in the mid-60s uh, in the U.S. with regards to the notion, maybe again, for what professional soccer might look like. Now, we, we've had a number of conversations around sort of the uh, early sort of uh, days of sort of that process coming together. But clearly the 1966 World Cup, you know, being on NBC and for, frankly, a, a whole generation of Americans, maybe for the first time, actually seeing this, quote unquote, foreign sport of soccer on the national or international stage, right, with uh, millions and millions of viewers and like, what is this thing? In the wake of that, right, St. Louis was very much in the mix for uh, being one of those uh, uh, cities to be considered as part of this. Well, it was it was I think it was three groups, right? They were trying to circle around creating a new professional league. Maybe a little bit of, uh, to your uh, knowledge, some of the background as to how St. Louis sort of uh, got into the mix. It seems obvious in hindsight. Uh, and in particular, this guy named Bob Herman, who seems to be very integral to all of that. Yes, uh, Bob Herman uh, was, you know, he, he had no soccer, soccer background at all, but he was a wealthy businessman in St. Louis. And, you know, he saw the possibilities of soccer as a moneymaker. And he was one of the guys um, who were the driving forces behind getting a nationwide professional league started. Another guy people probably may have never heard of in St. Louis is a guy named George Mahalovich. Um, he was. Um, I'm an immigrant from Yugoslavia who came to St. Louis in the late fifties. He was a soccer guy. Um, he became very, uh, um, influential in terms of not just as a player, but as a coach. And he brought training methods from Yugoslavia. Nobody in St. Louis had ever seen. Um, and when he heard about there was going to be a professional league in the United States, he was on top of it and, uh, trying to get players together, trying to promote the team, he brought Bayern Munich to play here in 1966 at Bush Stadium against a team of St. Louis All-Stars uh, as a way to try and generate some enthusiasm to get St. Louis into this nationwide professional league. So it was a combination of George Mihaljevic at the level of getting players and training and Bob Herman at the business level uh, who were chiefly responsible for bringing a team in St. Louis to play in North American Soccer League. Yeah, and you college soccer fans out there obviously know the Herman uh, Award, the Herman Trophy, which is awarded to uh, the nation's best female and male players. It's named after uh, after Bob, of course. Uh, and now you know the rest of the story, is, uh, uh, as you may have heard in years past with uh, other commentators in the world of, uh, of radio. But it was interesting because there were – it wound up to be two competing leagues, and, and the USA and the NPSL – uh, and there was actually a third entity that was sort of involved in that. Um, from your recollection, what, what, how was how was Herman kind of, um, shall we say, dragged into this 
crazy scenario, right, in retrospect, uh, to get involved, right? Because in some respects, it almost, you know, I think St. Louis obviously makes makes perfect sense to to place a franchise. But, you know, from the business perspective, right, you've got two, almost, well, now three sort of competing entities all trying to kind of, I don't know, maybe money grab in the wake of this 1966 World Cup tournament. You got to be pretty deft to figure out sort of like how to play all this because the politics of soccer, which I'm sure he was probably naive to when he's committed to doing this, uh, really got in the way in that process. So how does St. Louis, I guess, in 1967 become a member of the one of the two leagues, the National Professional Soccer League versus all the other possibilities? Um, well, you know, the reputation of St. Louis as being a soccer hotbed obviously had been established by that time. So that was one of the factors. Um, but it takes more than that. It takes money. And Bob, you know, was the money guy. Uh, and I think he saw the possibilities of this sport becoming, you know, a major sport in the United States based on the TV ratings, you know, the, the TV, the number of people watched the 1966 uh, World Cup final. Uh, and uh, so I think those two factors are what got him interested. Um, so it was a combination of St. Louis being, you know, having a reputation as a soccer hotbed, plus the fact that, you know, he saw the potential to make to make some money out of soccer. Yeah, that got him interested. And, and you know, with his influence uh, as one of the founders of the league, I mean, it was only natural to get a team in St. Louis. Yeah, well, it, it's clear that that the, a lot of folks who got involved kind of looked at it as a business first and maybe soccer second or even third uh, once you look back on it. But the St. Louis Stars was the team. And, and 1967 in the NPSL, um, you know, it had the benefit of a of a national TV contract with CBS. It also had the the unfortunate sort of branding uh, of being a quote unquote outlaw league because it was of the two entities, not the one that FIFA and the U S soccer federation uh, blessed. And um, yeah, what wasn't sanctioned, right? Yeah. That, that had to make for some interesting times or, or frankly, did it not matter because it was soccer, it was professional. It was in the new Bush stadium and it was in St. Louis to fans. Yeah. At that time it, it wasn't a, a it definitely did not have any bearing on, on the league, I don't think. Um, not like it would today with, you know, the popularity of, you know, international soccer and U.S. Soccer Federation and the national teams and all that. You know, the national team hardly ever played in those days. I mean, so as far as the people who ran the professional leagues were concerned, I mean, you know, why should we be tied to this entity that, you know, basically just wants to take a cut of what we're making and they have no other well, their impact on the game. So, uh, as far as the you know, and the fans, why would they care? They just went to watch the games. So, um, the sanctioning issue, I don't think, was a was a problem uh, at, at first. But I think they, you know, as these guys became involved in operating the sport, they saw that you know, if we're not sanctioned, this could help hurt us getting players. So, you know, that led, I think, to the. North American side, the merger of the two leagues at that time becoming the North American Soccer League. Well, relatively speaking, I mean, the Stars seemed to do pretty well that first season in the MPSL. I mean, against a relative statement, I, I, I think it was like just just under 8,000 people a game, um, which tells you something about how the other teams were or were not drawing. But, you know, clearly the as the NASL sort of uh, puttered along and, and, you know, merged and then Almost really was on its its uh, on death's door, circa you know, 1970, 1971. Um, the stars hung in there, but I guess I, I I really 
want to know uh, sort of how fans and the team kind of hung on in those times, right? I mean, clearly St. Louis, very strong uh, soccer background, so maybe a little bit more uh, insured, I guess, perhaps versus other cities that were somewhat new and or, you know, flashes in the more flashes in the pan. But how do you hang on professionally like that when, you know, the league gets down to five teams, you know, in 1970, 1971? And they figured that the business model for us to survive was we had to just basically go with local guys. Um, you know, they had a heavily foreign influenced team the first couple of seasons. They couldn't afford to pay those guys anymore and keep going. So their business model was we're going to local guys, we'll pay them whatever we can. And that's how we keep going. Um, they figure, hey, if St. Louis is supposed to be the soccer capital of the United States. We should have the talent here to, you know, to field a team. And so the balance of that roster, you know, the, the, was, was dominated by St. Louis guys. That was our business model to survive. Uh, there's some famous stories that players have told me from that area. You know, they'd go in for their uh, contract discussion and the general manager would say, well, here's the pie. We can only cut it so many ways. Here's your slice. This is what you're getting. And they said it wasn't a whole lot of money, but there was no other option. You know, if you wanted to play professionally, that was the only way to get only, our only opportunity. So their business model was, let's these local guys, we'll pay them what we can, and that's how we'll survive. All right, we're going to take a quick, brief pause, and we want to remind you that our friends at Audible are offering to you, our listeners, an opportunity to get a free audiobook download from their amazing array of over 190,000 titles to choose from when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats, and that's the place to go to get your free audiobook download courtesy of us and Audible. And uh, it's just something you can cancel at any time, and you can uh, keep the book for as long as your device exists. And like I said before, there's just a ton of choices available to you to burn up that free credit, uh, including a bunch in the realm of our forgotten sports little genre here, including uh, in the realm of basketball. If you fancy yourself a fan of the old ABA, for example, two great books on the great Julia Serving that might be worth using your credit for. One, of course, is The Rise and Rise of Julia Serving. It's called Doc, and it's written by Vincent Malazzi and uh, narrated by David Cremet. You could use your credit for that book, and it's a great sort of interview style background on the uh, life and times of Dr. J from all sides. But if that's not good enough for you, why not try the autobiography? It's called Dr. J, the autobiography, of course. It's written by Dr. J in concert with uh, Carl Greenfeld. And it's narrated by Dr. J himself, Julius Irving. And uh, you could use your credit for that book, as well as, like I said, thousands and thousands of other books, not just only in basketball and basketball history, but in a whole host of genres and topics. By all means, give them a try. Why don't you? It's risk-free, for God's sakes. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Yes, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's the link. And that's where you're going to get your free audiobook download. Again, you can cancel at any time. And once you do download that book for free, and uh, after you cancel it, if you if you choose to do that, it's yours to keep. So you can enjoy in perpetuity for as long as your device lives, uh, the downloaded book free and gratis, courtesy of uh, yours truly here at Good Seats Still Available and our friends at Audible. Thank you, Audible. We appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate you joining our conversation once again.
in many respects, this was sort of the first true pro soccer franchise in this country that that almost as a business model <laughs> kind of used the American player as the center, right? Obviously, as a cost-cutting move, but, you know, God forbid, you know, this is actually a way to help develop or, or sh- sow the seeds of how to develop the American player, which, you know, still we're kind of still trying to figure out in 2019. Yeah. I mean, they would have like a sprinkling of foreign players, but to kind of, you know, we'll have maybe three or four foreign guys, but the rest of the team is going to be local. Um, and that's how we're going to make it. And they did, you know, they held their own. There were a couple seasons where they made the playoffs. Uh, their best team was in 1975, uh, largely because somehow they got Peter Benetti as our goalkeeper, who was the uh, goalkeeper for England for in, in you know in, in the World Cup just before that. And uh, he had a rather, he's remembered not very fondly in England for some mistakes he made, but he was a pretty darn good goalkeeper. And uh, somehow they got him to play for the Stars in 1975, and they made it all the way to the uh, you know finals that year. Well, they also made it to the final in uh, in 72, losing to the Cosmos, who got their first one right. Um, but uh, any names that kind of stuck out, I, I think certainly the name of Pat McBride, which is uh, somebody that uh, people will know in years later, as we'll get to. Uh, any other names sort of kind of stand out as sort of the uh, the elemental uh, players of the of the stars during the during that time. Well, the two guys uh, were like the uh, fulcrum of the team were the midfielders, Pat McBride and Al Trost, both in the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame. Um, Pat was one of these guys that had endless energy, you know, from one end of the field to the other. He could score. He could get back and defend. He covered a lot of ground. And uh, Al Trost was somebody that uh, Shep Messing played with as a teammate on the U.S. national team and Olympic team. And Shep said that, you know, he was the first box-to-box midfielder ever played with, meaning he could play at one end of the field and be down at the other and just dominate a game. So with those two guys in midfield, that was really kind of the fulcrum of that team uh, during those years in the 70s. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, the, the and the, the, again, the real evidence of the, the kind of sort of typical, uh, or maybe atypical, if you think about it, American player in, in the league. I, arguably, that's part of the testament to why the Stars lasted you know, a good decade, and frankly, in, in some of the more, I guess, tumultuous years of the NASL. I mean, hanging on by a thread. I, I think, you know, one of the interesting little asterisks in this history is, and, and again, it will play out in, in our conversation a little later, uh, is the earliest origins professionally of the indoor game during this time that uh, not many people sort of know or remember. Uh, any uh, insight into sort of the early rumblings of the indoor game, which seems to be uh, highlighted by some events that happened in St. Louis during this period of time. Yeah. Um, you know, for years and years and years, kids in St. Louis had grown up playing something called hock sock, uh, which is basically, you know, when it's the weather's too bad to go outside for PE class, we're going to go in a gym and we're going to throw out a soccer ball and throw a couple shirts on the floor for, to make goals at each end. And we're going to play soccer, you know, any, everything's in play. So, that in St. Louis kind of genesis of people becoming familiar with indoor soccer uh, because kids played it that le- at that level. Uh, and then in the mid seventies, um, professionally, there started to be some, you know, what can we do to make some more money? Well, Hey, maybe we can use these guys. They're not playing in the winter. Let's see if we can get something started in the uh, indoors and make a little extra dough. So, um, the story of that is a guy named Ed Tupper uh, 
Yes, previous yeah. guest on this little show. Yes, very intriguing yeah. story. Yes, it, it, well, he, he then he's told you the story about how all that started in uh, the mid seventies. In that period, um, they decided to uh, stage a game in St. Louis at what was called the old St. Louis Arena, which was where the Blues played the hockey team at that time. And um, they played the, the Red Army uh, in a game. Um, I think it was in nineteen seventy five as part of the Red Army tour of the United States. And they played first in Toronto and Philadelphia. And then on February 13th, they played in St. Louis. They drew 12,000 people to the game. And um, it was a crazy game. I, I was there, in fact. And, you know, it was just endless action. And people had really never seen that before at that level. You know, professional players playing on a hockey hockey rink, you know, with the artificial turf thrown over the ice and the balls just constantly in play. And that was kind of the genesis of that, that tour was kind of the genesis of what became uh, the major indoor soccer league starting in 1978. Um, so yeah, St. Louis had a, had a, had a role in, in all that, that story as well. I don't know if Ed got into that with you, but uh, that game in St. Louis was part of that genesis of indoor soccer on a professional level. Yeah, that's interesting. It was, I think it was like the day after the game that was played in Philadelphia that he went to. Yes, that's correct. Uh huh. No, I think that's I think that's that's pretty amazing because well, okay. So maybe you could juxtapose then. So uh, you see sort of this excitement of of the indoor game, and obviously it's it's kind of you know a one off, and and people are still thinking it for the outdoor game. But so maybe you can explain a bit about how the stars and the NASL were were doing in the mid seventies, because uh, obviously the indoor thing was more of a if you will an exhibition or maybe just a a glint in people's eyes, not even. Uh, envisioned as being a full-time thing because it's it's strange to me again all in hindsight and not having grown up there that as the league the nasl outdoor was truly starting to catch fire 75 76 77 pele uh national television dalliances and uh, more teams and, and franchises and players coming from from europe that st louis ha- somehow didn't hang on and and sort of enjoy the you know, I guess the, 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 the halcyon years of the late 70s and maybe 1980 uh, as part of that. Yeah, the Stars' ownership just didn't have the money to uh, keep up with Warner Communications in New York and other owners who were, you know, laying out lots of money to bring in people like Pele and other international stars, you know, and paying that kind of money. And the, the Stars didn't have that, that kind of uh, backing to compete at that level, which is kind of the whole story of what happened to that league. You know, it basically a few owners outspent everybody else. And as a result, you know, the league finally went belly up in the, what, 1984, I think. Um, but they, the stars just couldn't keep up with the kind of money that was being thrown around in some other, other cities in, in, in the NASL. Uh, the other issue was, where are we going to play? I mean, they, there was Bush stadium. You're going to draw, you know, five or six or 7,000 people in a 50,000 seat stadium. I mean, it looks ridiculous. Um, there was really no other place to play, so they tried playing at Washington University, which had a uh, a football field. Um, actually, it was the whole facility was used uh, in the 1904 Olympics, and by the 1970s, it was kind of a crum, crum, crumbling, decrepit place. That you know, you went to watch a soccer game and watch the soccer, and there were no amenities other than that. You know, you sat on benches and the bleachers and you know, it wasn't real conducive to, you know, the atmosphere of, you know what I mean? You can watch 
the the Cosmos drawing seventy thousand people at you know at Giant Stadium, and then you come to St. Louis and they're playing at uh, a small NCAA Division three football field at Washington University that's not in real good shape. So the money factor was in the end what what forced them to finally pull up their tent and move to Anaheim, California. Well, it's okay. Do you, any insight as to to how and why Herman decided that Anaheim? would be the place to move this team? And was there any significant effort or, or new ownerships uh, sought to keep the team in St. Louis? Again, you think about all this rich history and, you know, just as the NASL is really kind of taken root, you know, uh, the, the heart and soul of American soccer, you know, is in danger of being left behind. And ultimately it was. Yeah. There was no organized effort to keep the team here. And um, I just, I think the owners just, said, you know, let's go West and maybe we can get a bigger fan base. Maybe we can get some more capital to keep this team going. But it's not going to make it in St. Louis because we just don't have the wherewithal to do it. And uh, it's kind of a shame that they didn't because uh, just as the stars were leaving, uh, there was a, a guy named uh, Denny Long who was a rising executive at Anheuser-Busch, who was a big soccer guy. And, you know, Anheuser-Busch at that time was one of the world's leading brewers and uh, as he grew, went up the ranks, he began devoting more and more money from the brewery to support soccer, starting in the, uh, you know, about five or six years later in the mid-80s. But there was nobody at that time who, was, who could be the sugar daddy to keep the, keep the team going or had the, had the desire to keep the team going. So there was really no effort made to keep them here, which was a shame. Well, let, let's talk about Denny Long for a minute, because he's, uh, his is a name that has come up on a number of occasions. Uh, J.P. Delacamera, for example, uh, and a few others who have said, Bob Carpenter, another one, a, a former steamer broadcaster, who has said that, you know, uh, without Denny Long and the the, the dollars of Anheuser-Busch uh, under his uh, guidance, uh, the pro game, indoor, outdoor, or whatever, uh, maybe even the U.S. national sort of efforts, uh, maybe wouldn't have made it. Oh, yeah, you can, you can make a strong argument for the fact that soccer at that level would not have survived in this country without Denny Long because he devoted lots of resources from Anheuser-Busch to sponsor teams, to sponsor the soccer federation, to sponsor the national team. Um, there's a story that the national team was in a hotel somewhere and they couldn't pay the bill to get out. So Denny Long dispatched uh, one of his executives, Dan Flynn, in fact, who's, you know, recently retired as the number two guy in U.S. soccer, sent him to the hotel to pay their bills. Um, so it was that kind of support that really kept soccer going to that dark period in the mid eighties, you know, when the NASL was going under and uh, people were wondering, is there a future for soccer in this country? And it was his, his belief in soccer and his, you know, using the breweries uh, money to, to keep things going that really kept the sport alive. And during that period, I guess the question I have is, or just maybe two questions is why and how, why the interest in soccer on his part? And then how do you get or convince uh, you know, a major organization to, to divert or spend their marketing dollars on something that's, um, you know, in marketing parlance, maybe questionable from an ROI perspective. Yeah. Well, Denny was one of those guys who'd grown up playing soccer in St. Louis. I mean, he was just a soccer guy. Um, and as he, you know, unlike most other soccer guys who, you know, didn't have the kind any kind of influence, you know, he achieved that level by basically becoming the number two guy in Hazard Bush by the mid eighties. And so he was in a position where he could direct sponsorship money, um, 
into the sport. And um, he saw it as a way, you know, we're, we're, we're not just promoting soccer, but we're getting our brands out there. Uh, I mean, and at that time, Anheuser-Busch wasn't too heavily involved in international sales. I mean, there was some international sales, but not much. He saw soccer as a way to promote Anheuser-Busch brands wherever the World Cup's going to be played. We're going to sponsor the World Cup. We're going to have our ads on TV. We're going to have our signage at, at, at the games. People are going to find out that we make beer and we can sell our brands that way internationally. And so he saw soccer not just as something uh, to support as a good thing, but as a way to introduce Anheuser-Busch's brands internationally and as a, on the money-making side of it for the brewery. So there was more there was more incentive to it than just supporting soccer. It was a way to introduce Anheuser-Busch uh, to an international audience. Yeah, that's interesting. And and obviously takes not only some influence and position of influence at an organization like that, but also a bit of vision, right, to see that uh, it was uh, beyond sort of the borders of the United States. But so I, I so also now find that interesting that as you turn into the 1980s, that, uh, that interest and that sort of uh, – uh, set of dollars uh, committed to the sport uh, instead of uh, seemingly going after a new attempt to rejoin the North American Soccer League, which was really starting to gain some steam on especially a number of number of cities and nationally too on television on ABC, et cetera. But instead, professionally, this indoor game became kind of the way St. Louis crept back into the professional dialogue. Do you want to, Maybe get into. I, I'm guessing that Denny Long's influence was somewhat tangential on that one, but but maybe the the blessing of him and, and Anheuser Busch was probably part of the uh, the primordial ooze, I guess, of of the Steamers being founded in 1979 in the MISL. Yeah, he wasn't really involved in that. I mean, that just kind of came out of nowhere and took everybody by surprise um, when the major indoor soccer league decided to uh, put a franchise in St. Louis, everybody here was like, what are you talking about? Professional indoor soccer. I mean, we just lost an outdoor team to Anaheim. Um, but the people who worked in the front office just marketed the heck out of that team. Um, and on opening night, they sold out. They had 18,000 people, just caught everybody by surprise. I mean, nobody could see it coming. Um but as I mentioned, they, they, their marketing people just really marketed the heck out of that team. Um, and I think it attracted a lot of people who in 1975, you had like the baby boomers or, you know, starting to come of age, they've got some money to spend. What are we going to do on a Friday night? Let's go buy a cheap ticket and go to the, go to watch the steamers play. It's exciting. They're all guys that we know. That's the other thing. Most of the team were from St. Louis. Let's go watch him and see. And it was, it, it became a very exciting thing uh, for people to do at that time. It was just, um, it, it's really hard to explain. I mean, the promotion was just, was just really well done um, as far as getting, going out to like the youth clubs and the churches and the communities and promoting the team and getting people to come to the game. Um, the tickets were cheap. And it was something to do on a you know winter night when there's not much else to do in town. Um, so it was really amazing how that caught on. Well, I guess the Blues weren't doing all that well either. So it kind of and it was no there's right. no football team in St. Louis at that time either. So you know in terms of quote unquote professional, I mean it seems like and we've learned this in he- in retrospect. I mean I mean Ed Tepper and and 
Doug Verb and uh, Tom Meredith, a lot of others who have sort of talked about sort of the MISL and, and you know, in some respects, the uh, secondary markets, so to speak, right? That is not markets that had both an NBA and an NHL team and maybe some other, you know, an aggressive concert schedule, right? St. Louis clearly was not one of those, but yet it filled a gap and, and the word professional and soccer. I guess that's the question I would have, right? Is people sort of have a tough time explaining how they were so successful out of the gate. And remember, this was only the second ever season of the MISL, right? So it wasn't even, it was sort of a thing, right? But it wasn't sort of this white hot, you know, no no disrespect to Kansas City, comet of, of soccer. I mean, do you think it was because of soccer or because of its it's pro indoor something to do that's not the blues? Do you think it was just the excitement, the promotion, the, I don't know, the early days of, of whiz-bang uh, entertainment prior to and during the games? It was the excitement. It was the local players and many of these guys. I mean, these were, we're not just talking about guys from pickup teams. We're talking about national team players at that time. Guys like Denny Vaniger who played on the national team. Don Ebert, who played on the Olympic team, Steve Petcher, who was the captain of the U.S. national team, all St. Louis guys playing for the St. Louis Steamers. And the third factor is they had a guy in the front office named Tim Lywicki. We know who Tim Lywicki is. Sure. One of the great Lywicki brothers, uh, many of whom we want to get on the show because uh, that's an amazing story and family all in and of itself. Yeah, the whole Lywicki family was involved in that front office. And, you know, they they went on a greater things event but they were involved in promoting that team and tim especially did a great job promoting that team in the community and getting people to come out to games so i did an interview with him a couple years i think the second year the steamers were here and he said every game was a promotion with some focused community group and we made sure we went out and hit that group hard and got tickets sold and that was a big factor in getting people to come to the games and Averaging almost eighteen thousand a game, and I, I just this existentially though that's that's an interesting um, development, almost dichotomy, right? Because you know, obviously, as and you know, having watched these games when I was a kid, you know, uh, just to seeing these this sellout and then some, uh, just uh, just fever, if you will, in St. Louis at the at the now renamed Checker Dome uh, is was just simply amazing and scintillating, and it crackled on the on the TV screen. But there's also there was also those naysayers, right, who, you know, who ironically poo pooed the outdoor game for being boring and, you know, never going to take uh, take uh, catch on in the United States. And and yet here's this indoor version, which for numbers of different reasons, not just only the quality of soccer, but just the all the other stuff. Right. Was starting to starting to take off, I guess, existentially, especially for the St. Louis area, you wonder or I wonder if there was real kind of, I don't know, skepticism or or wonderment around the fact that that it was this, if you will, bastardized version of the sport that wound up catching on, given all the history of St. Louis in the outdoor game over those years. Um, there was a little bit of that, but I think, as I mentioned earlier, kids had grown I, I grew up playing hock sock in the wintertime. So, you know, it wasn't a foreign thing. It wasn't like they're taking our outdoor game and, you know, messing all up by playing indoors. You know, we had played as kids indoors, and so we understood, you know, a little bit about what that was about. And when you went to a game, you saw that, that caliber of player out there. Ricky Davis played for the Steamers, for example. I mean, you're seeing the best players in, in the United States playing right in front of you um, on a small space where the ball is always in play. 
lots of goals get scored. You can really see the individual skills of those guys up close and personal in an, an atmosphere where the, the play never stops. So I think that had a lot to do with the acceptance of the sport. We, kids in St. Louis knew about indoor soccer because they played it and the fact that there were these local high-level U.S. players playing for the Steamers had a lot to do with it as well. Then the third part was the promotion by the Lightwickies and the others in the front office. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, they were, the Steamers were for a couple of years, or at least one year, uh, the highest drawing team across all of the major indoor sports in the country, NBA and NHL included. That's right. Indoors, yes. Uh, in the indoor, at the indoor level, I think the only team that was out drawing them was uh, were the Edmonton Oilers, if I'm not mistaken, at that time. Um, so they, and this was on the average, obviously. I mean, they only didn't play as many games as the NHL and NBA teams did. But when you're talking about average attendance, they were over eighteen thousand in, in one season. You know, playing like ninety four percent capacity, which was pretty unheard of for soccer at that time. And making a profit apparently in their second or third year, which was awesome. Yes, they, they actually they actually turned a profit, uh, which it's thought that they were the first professional soccer team in the United States to turn a profit. I mean, who knows if that's true or not? But it certainly was unusual for any soccer team to make money at that time. So what what about the ownership? Because I look at the records, and there were you know there were four different uh, distinct groups that owned the team over the geez, not even 10 years. Um, where was Denny Long and Anheuser Bush in all this? Were they, were they ever, you mentioned they weren't really involved. I mean, obviously promotionally, I'm sure they were part of the, you know, sponsorship and all that stuff, but given Mr. Long's interest in the sport, uh, I wonder why he and they didn't step up and maybe partially or fully step up to own or purchase the franchise. Well, as you mentioned, they did on the, uh, as far as like supporting with, you know, they spent money to, to sponsor the team and stuff, buy advertisements and all that. Um, Denny told me that in the mid 80s, you know, the brewery came very close to buying the team. Um, August A. Bush III, who was the chairman, sat down with Denny and said, you know, should we do this? Is this a good deal? And August Bush III, I worked for Anheuser Bush, and he was one of the most forceful CEOs I've ever worked for. He knew his stuff. And Denny looked him in the eye and said, August, I can't tell you that this is a long-term good deal for the brewery. So he said, okay, we're not going to buy it then. So Denny said, I had to look at it at, you know, at the bottom line level, is this going to be something that's going to generate revenue for the brewery? And I said, honestly, I couldn't say it would. So that was at that point, that's when Anheuser-Busch decided not to buy the team. Well, it's certainly interesting, and during the, uh, the 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 majority of the 1980s, I mean, the steamers were, you know, uh, year in and year out, uh, you know, a highlight uh, on television and uh, on schedules and stuff. And but it, they never seemed to kind of get to that promised land of that final. I mean, those those amazing series in those first uh, four or five years, especially with the New York Arrows and and hosting the championship series that one year and coming that close. Uh, I remember that uh, that double header. Uh, I guess it was in the the eighty eighty one season. I, for, I I can't exactly remember what it was, but it was like yes, a yeah, it was a double header, and and St. Louis obviously the place to for it to be uh, hosted, and just uh, shootout goals and all kinds of stuff. But St. Louis never sort of get got into that promised land of winning the championship uh, because of say the New York Arrows and later the San Diego Sockers. 
Yeah, they came close. Um, you know, they they had a heck of a rivalry with the New York Heroes, and and um, one of the themes in St. Louis soccer has always been that the attitude it's us against them, them being like these foreign dominated teams that come in. We're all St. Louis guys, you know. We've got a bone to pick, you know. We, we we're going to show them that we can play just as good as they can. Um, so when they played the Arrows. Who are mostly, you know, foreign dominated team outside of Shep Messing and a couple others. There was always that feeling as we got to show these guys we're just as good as they are. And uh, that was a very, that's a theme that's run through St. Louis soccer throughout its history. Um, I remember, I think it was 1981, 82 season, the first time the Arrows came to town after they had beaten the Steamers by one goal in the final the year before. The place was packed and I actually could feel the building shake. It was the, the crowd was so into it, and it was such a big deal that we're playing. You know, these the hated foreigners from New York. Um, so there was always that feeling that you know we've got to show them. Um, so um, there were some great great rivalries with the Arrows, and then later on the Soccers the same way. Um, Julie V, if you remember from the San Diego Soccers, one of their great players. Um, Ty Keogh, a St. Louis guy who played for the Steamers, played outdoors for the Soccers, and he said Julie V used to call, used to say he had one word for him for an American soccer player, a useless American. <laughs> he called Ty, "You're you're one of those useless Americans," and uh, so that was the kind of the attitude that the St. Louis guys had. You know, they think we're useless players, but we're going to show them. So there was that kind of emotion that ran through those games. Yeah, and. Um... It's also ironic, too, that uh, uh, the the coach of the Arrows winds up uh, having been part of the St. Louis Stars family. And then later, yeah, Don Popovich, right, uh, you know, and then comes back when uh, the team folds and, and the new MISL and then later franchise of the Storm comes into play. Who comes to coach him? Don Popovich. Yeah. And and Don here has been very active in youth soccer ever since that. He, he uh, runs one of the youth clubs here. Um, so it is kind of ironic that here's a guy who came to St. Louis, married a St. Louis girl, wound up coaching the arrows and, you know, they hated arrows. So it was an interesting dichotomy for sure. Well, let, let's, let's, let's talk about sort of the, the, the aftermath of the MISL and the steamers, right? Obviously the storm. And then that begat the, uh, the ambush as the MPSL became kind of the, uh, the major uh, indoor league uh, and and a bunch of other things and the steamers name coming back. I mean, it's interesting how St. Louis stuck around uh, in the indoor game as it kind of sort of petered off and or sort of meandered its way through the CISL and the WISL and all these other SLs. Is that a testament to the steamers uh, uh, starting power or just the, the sheer grit of, of St. Louis wanting to stay at the, I guess, the, the top level of, of soccer, which was largely indoors at that time. Why do you think there was still continued interest, albeit at a maybe lower level, uh, in, in professional indoor in St. Louis? Well, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of people, you know, obviously, who watched those early games in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s. And so they were, they were still continuing to come to those games. So there was a market there, if you know what I mean. There was a base of, of attendance that you know you could pretty much rely on if you started a professional indoor team in St. Louis. I mean, they were still drawing, you know, double digit, uh, you know, over ten thousand fans to games as as late as the early two thousands. So there was always that you know potential fan base there. So I think that's one of the reasons why they kept keeping a team in St. Louis 
through all those different leagues and iterations, the Storm, Ambush, uh, second time they try the steamers, now there's another iteration of the Ambush here. So there's that, you know, so there's that fan base that exists that makes it you know, logical for an indoor league to have a team in St. Louis. All right. Well, let's let's also talk about the uh, maybe we can round the corner here on uh, the outdoor game and its lead up to what is uh, ultimately now going to be, uh, after a long and winding road, uh, an actual MLS team in St. Louis. In the late 2000s, right, you had, um, uh, ironically, uh, a women's team as the uh, approach to the outdoor game with the Athletica uh, for a fairly brief cup of coffee obviously world um, excuse me women's professional soccer being the second uh, attempt after the ill-fated WUSA uh, and then also the USL franchise which uh, still mo- uh, goes on today St. Louis FC uh, maybe a little bit of a uh, uh, background and, and insight into uh, those two efforts that again keep the uh, the flames alive uh, to what we'll get to as I guess our final question on the MLS front um, any sort of interesting standout stories of, of those two efforts? Because they both, I think, shared a field for some time, maybe still do, uh, but FC still plays uh, out uh, in, uh, is it Soccer Park or what used to be called Soccer Park? Yeah, one of the legacies of Denny Long is that he used the brewery's money to basically build what's called the Soccer Park here in St. Louis. He actually sent architects from the brewery over to Germany to look at how their club facilities were built, and he modeled the soccer park on a club facility in Germany. It's a complex of uh, about a half dozen fields with a stadium field in the center that at that time could seat about 10,000. Now it can seat about, oh, 6,000 because they've taken out the bleachers at each behind each goal. Um, so it was one of the first soccer-specific facilities in the United States built in the mid-'80s. So the facility was here. And then I mentioned earlier there was a guy named Jeff Cooper, an attorney who wanted to get an MLS team here. Well, when Jeff started that, he went all in. I mean, he got a franchise in women's professional soccer, which became the St. Louis Athletica, um, as he was trying to get MLS to St. Louis, he started um, what was known as AC St. Louis, which was a second division team um, for the men. Uh, the Athletica were a really a good team. I mean, they had like seven or eight international players, uh, uh, you know, who play on various national teams. Um, Hope Solo was the goalkeeper. Uh, Lori Klupney, a St. Louis uh, woman who played on the national team, played on the team. Um, there were national team players from Japan and England on that team. So it was really a very good team. And the interesting story about that, uh, I don't know if you've ever read Hope Solo's book, but she mentioned she was sitting at an airport, the airport in Chicago, I guess it was O'Hare, waiting for a flight, and this guy walks up to her and says, you're Hope Solo, aren't you? And she's like, yeah. And she said, well, my name's Jeff Cooper, and I want you to play for my women's team. So that's how he recruited Hope Solo to play for the Athletica. And she said when um, the players were dispersed to the, the, the new teams, you know, they had three choices of where they wanted to play. And she said, I put St. Louis, St. Louis, St. Louis. <laughs> so basically Jeff Cooper got her to play for the Athletica uh, and it was his enthusiasm that got the Athletica going and AC St. Louis. But unfortunately, as the MLS expansion fees kept going up and up and up, it basically outpriced him. Uh, he got some bad investment guys involved from England who basically pulled the plug on him. 
uh, right in the middle of the season, and he didn't have the money to continue the Athletico or AC. Uh, so they went out of business halfway through their second season, I think it was, or third season. And then AC St. Louis folded after their first season. Um, so that was the story behind the Athletica and uh, the first Division II team, men's team, that played here. And since then, the USL has been represented by a team there as well, right? Since, uh, what, 2005 or so? Uh, since, like, I think 2014. I can't remember Sorry, the first year. Second year, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that's St. Louis FC. Um, and that, when Jeff Cooper finally had to get out of it because it became too expensive, um, another guy stepped up uh, named Jim Cavanaugh, uh, who played for the old steamers in the late 80s, but more significantly was the co-founder of Worldwide Technology, which is a huge, uh, a huge um, computer company. They don't make computers. They basically sell you stuff on the cloud and, and things of that nature. Anyway, he was the co-founder of that. So he had the money to do something about it. So he bought the soccer park. He bought uh, the number one youth organization in St. Louis called St. Louis Scott Gallagher, became the head of that. And then he, through his influence, he was able to get a USL franchise here, St. Louis FC. So um, that was the backstory on how uh, St. Louis came back into men's professional soccer. All right. Well, you know, as they say, the past is prelude, right? So let's uh, let's wind up with this uh, sort of final question. And I know you've been uh, gearing up to sort of chime in on this. So given all of that, and by the way, this this book, uh, we just literally scratched the surface. I mean, there's just so much history and so many interesting stories and diversions and and curiosities that uh, the the sport and St. Louis have uh, have enjoyed uh, together over the many decades. Um so uh, it's clear that uh, the, uh, the 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 legacy is very rich and the and the history of the sport is very strong. Two questions: one, why do you think it's taken? And you maybe alluded to it, but why do you think it's taken so long? Given that the that Major League Soccer is, you know, two decades on, uh, plus old now, uh, for St. Louis to finally uh, reach sort of that top tier promised land of uh, of Division One soccer again. And then two, what do you think of MLS and its structure and 28 teams and still growing uh, and St. Louis's modern day chances of succeeding in what is definitely a very different professional landscape in this country? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, the, the short answer why St. Louis was an MLS is because nobody had the money to afford it. Um, you know, Jeff Cooper, the guy I mentioned earlier, just as the expansion fees went up and up, it basically priced him out. Nobody was willing to step forward with the kind of money that was required. You know, you need to be a billionaire, not a millionaire. Uh, Jeff's a millionaire. He's not a billionaire. So he had to step out of the picture. So there was nothing, you know, legacy won't, legacy is great. Having a great history is wonderful, but it's not going to buy an MLS franchise. So not until the family that owns enterprise holdings decided to get involved with all their, you know, influence and financial backing, um, was it possible to get MLS even interested in coming back to St. Louis? When you're talking about the largest rental car company in the world, headquartered in St. Louis, and the family that owns it, you know, wants to, they're like, hey, we'll build a stadium, we'll pay the franchise fee, we're not going to ask for much money from the from the from the city, you know, we're willing to do this. It's like, how can you not turn them down when you have the city with the history and with the, you know, of, of 
that has in soccer, and then you've got somebody who finally has the money to do it. It'd be crazy for MLS not to do it. So that's the kind of the short story on how that happened. As far as MLS going forward, you know, a lot of people criticize MLS as, you know, they want promotion and relegation, and they want MLS teams to be able to pay whatever they want to pay to get the best players here. And I'm old enough to remember how that ruined the NASL. You know, when you had a few owners outspending everybody else. So MASL, MLS has consciously built their business model to prevent that. So I can understand where they're coming from. What worries me about MLS is we're talking about 30 teams now. And we have 28, St. Louis is 28, Sacramento will be 29. Um, they're talking about probably uh, Carolina being number 30. I worry about where the player is going to come from to support 30 teams. You know, maybe they can do it. I just wonder where the talent is going to come from. Are we going to, is that going to really seriously dilute the caliber of play? Um, you know, are we going to be seeing not very good soccer because we've got too many teams? That worries me about MLS. You know, are they too many teams out there? Where are we going to get the players to stock the teams? And if people aren't seeing the kind of soccer they want to see, is that going to then hurt attendance and TV viewership? So I have some concerns about how MLS is going to make sure this expansion is going to play out. Yeah, single entity too, which is a topic we've gotten into on a number of different occasions from a lot of hugely historical perspective too. And, you know, competitiveness and the Euro snobs who try to compare it and contrast it to, you know, some of the world's, uh, you know, top uh, historical leagues and all that kind of stuff. I guess, the, you know, we all sort of root for its success because arguably if any, if any city in this country uh, deserves, and I know Portland calls themselves Soccer City USA and did so in the mid-1970s, but if any, any, any city in this country uh, truly deserves a top-tier professional uh, soccer franchise. It's absolutely St. Louis, and and I think frankly the uh, the long uh, winding road finally, hopefully, comes to a nice uh, end point with a, a lovely stadium and, and competitive team. Um, but you know, I think your your concerns are, are are very real and shared. I guess my thought is, and we've talked about this earlier too, is uh, I wonder how you might think. Uh, this new franchise will or won't embrace this history of St. Louis's soccer past. We've seen some teams, right, in MLS, mostly, I think, from a grassroots level, really, uh, embrace things from, say, the North American Soccer League to the point of having a number of them adopt the names of their former teams uh, from the NASL. What do you, last question, what do you think the role of St. Louis's soccer history will or won't play in this franchise given its ownership and MLS's corporate structure and all that kind of stuff. You'd hate to see it ignored or forgotten. From, from what they've done so far, they've been very conscious of that in, in their promotional materials. If you go on their website and watch their videos, you know, they make a lot of use of historical photos from soccer in St. Louis. Uh, when they made the announcement, they made sure that, the key people in the history of St. Louis soccer were there like Pat McBride and Al Trost. Um, I think they're going to, they're not going to forget. They're going to promote that as part of their way of getting people involved in the franchise. You know, there's our, we have a great past. We have a great future. So I think they're tying the past and the future together very well so far. And I think they'll continue to do that. So I have no concerns about them ignoring St. Louis, St. Louis's soccer past. 
All right, it's getting exciting in St. Louis for sure. Major League Soccer franchise finally, uh, top-tier professional outdoor soccer, returns arguably to the birthplace of the sport uh, in the U.S. And uh, certainly St. Louis is more than deserving of its own uh, top-notch, top-tier franchise. And uh, let's hope, frankly, uh, as Dave and I just alluded to, that history is part of it, uh, whether it's a name uh, or in the stadium or, or in the traditions that uh, come about, uh, or all of it, frankly. Uh, There's just too much history there uh, of soccer in St. Louis to to be ignored or whitewashed. And um, you could argue that we will be uh, on the prowl, on the hunt, uh, on the lookout uh, to uh, hopefully ensure and maybe uh, suggest more mightily that uh, that uh, is the case. And, and I suspect that uh, the smarties behind the franchise and all their investment uh, will be wise enough to uh, to recognize and honor the past as well as they look towards the, uh, the future of the pro game uh, in St. Louis. Uh, we uh, absolutely encourage you uh, to go out of your way and find a copy of this book. As we said, it's, it's out of print. It's already sold out. But uh, as Dave alluded to, uh, there is uh, clearly uh, some newfound interest into uh, revising and reissuing this book. Uh, there are used copies out there. You can find them on Amazon, and uh, we will have a link conveniently uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up uh, this episode with Dave Lang. It's episode number 130. Holy mackerel. And you will find a link to it. And uh, if you decide to purchase a copy of it that way, you will be giving us a few uh, pennies and nickels of love. Uh, We appreciate that. Keeps our show going and uh, pays our lights and our bills. That would be uh, really awesome. We, of course, encourage you to... uh, to reach out to folks and see if you can uh, help Dave perhaps get uh, this book reissued. But I will tell you, it, it is very well done. Uh, it is uh, stunningly visual as well as it is well written. Uh, and it doesn't read like a book at all. It doesn't feel like a history lesson in the least. It's it's quite fascinating stuff. And, you know, we proverbially just scratch the surface in our chat with Dave. But uh, it is published by Reedy Press. And uh, I highly encourage you to uh, seek out a copy. Uh, even if you're not from St. Louis, I think uh, anybody who's interested in history... Uh, generally of sports uh, or soccer specifically uh, will enjoy this uh, this book or even the history of St. Louis generally. It's well worth uh, seeking out and uh, you will be greatly rewarded by uh, by reading it and enjoying it as I did uh, in preparation for this show. This show uh, is uh, also the reason that uh, you're listening and we appreciate it, of course, and you want to find out more about this show, the silly little show. Uh, you can, uh, like I said, go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, And you can find out uh, just about anything you want about it. Uh, You'll find all of our old episodes. You can stream them right from the site there. You can download them. You can uh, set up an RSS feed so you can every single episode going forward. You want to follow us on social media? Well, there's a couple of quick links there. You'll be whisked away to those places. But on Twitter, we're at Good Seats Still. Uh, On uh, Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, On Facebook, there's a page devoted to us there, too. You can use that. Let's see. Also on the website, you'll be able to find our little uh, newsletter that we put out each and every week, a little uh, head start, if you will, a little advance notice about what we're going to be uh, broadcasting that uh, coming week. So just uh, get yourself on that list. Just click click over there or clink. Why not? After after a couple of beverages, doesn't matter. Just, you know, just sign up for God's sakes, however you want to do it. And uh, let's see what else. We got an email address. Sure, we do it. Hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, send us uh, some notes there. We appreciate, you know, the nice ones. And uh, if you forget the address, well, you just uh, find that link there, too, on the website. Let's see what else. Oh, yeah. Before we go, of course, we want to say thank you uh, tremendously, of course, to 
You know him. You love him. You, we can't live without him. His name is Jerry Payne, the good doctor. And uh, he and Podfly Productions are the uh, gentle souls who put our little pieces together each and every week and uh, make this sound as uh, smooth as a baby's bottom, if you will. And uh, you can find out more. <laughs> I'm straining for the analogies today as the uh, as the day gets longer. Uh, you can find out more about them at Podfly Productions and they're at Podfly. Net. All right, we're done for this week, mercifully, but we uh, appreciate to no end your listening and your support of the show. Hope you enjoyed it this week, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. And uh, before we leave you, we're going to take you out with, uh, you know, some memories of when St. Louis was all the rage in indoor soccer. Here's some golden memories from the St. Louis Steamers. Remember that from the indoor soccer days. Here they go. Here they are. And until next week, we'll see. You're listening to Major Indoor Soccer League action on KMOXFM in St. Louis. Jim Holder along with Nancy Drew. And a big crowd here at the Chuckanome now beginning to come alive. So it goes down on the far side. Johnny Evans is right there. There's Tony Glavin. And he scores. From right at the top of the hot box. Glavin finds the back. And Slobielski hustling, coming out of goal, pushing up to Bobby Bazzotta. He goes down on the goal. Scores by Steve Petcher. And it's 7-4. goes into Donnie Ebert, and the big puncher misses, and they scored! Donnie Ebert has tied the game! Ebert heads it in from just that near post, and we are tied at seven.